0: welcome to grief is my side hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am really delighted. And I, I have to say, I feel like, because we're recording this on a really heavy day in our country, you know, there was a a mass shooting, 21 people were murdered yesterday and most of them were babies and, you know, it's a, it's a brutal day. And so I'm really delighted, to be here talking about grief and loss and talking about the various ways of grieving with Stephanie Foster, because Stephanie, you are bringing to our platform, Grief is My Side Hustle, a way of being in grief and loss that we haven't really explored before. So I'm really grateful that you are sharing your hour with us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so, so happy to be here. I'm you know, a stand-up comic first is what I like to tell people, mental health advocates second, <laughs> just because I perhaps I'm a very flawed messenger, but I like that. I, love um, it. I like leading with that part. And, uh, you know, I think it's important for people to know the connection that I have to this podcast is two years ago, I lost one of my best friends to suicide and I'm also a suicide attempt survivor. And after losing that friend something I struggle with so personally, I created a comedy tour about mental health that stops at sorority houses across the nation. And we just finished our first leg across the South. And you know what? Turns out my favorite way to grieve is laughing my ass off. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God.
0: I wish people could see your face right now. I, I, I mean, it's such an incredible answer. And it is not necessarily intrinsic. So, so deepen in for us, like, tell us has laughter always been the antidote for you? Did this only come after your friend's death by suicide? Like where, where did this release and this type of grieving sort of make itself known to you?
1: Yeah. I think for me, like dark humor has always been the thing. And I even say this in my shows and like a prerequisite, because like you say, grief and, you know, even more intense topic, suicide prevention, don't naturally go hand in hand with comedy. <laughs>
0: no, ma'am, they do not. But good comedy, and I've heard comics say this, you know, anything that is uncomfortable is really rife for comedy, right? Because
1: yeah. laughing
0: through our discomfort is a human way of navigating.
1: Well, and you just think about it in the form of like my number one goal is to start conversations and my whole life, the way I start conversations is by making a joke out of something. That's how I've made friends. And like, that's how everybody in my life knows I'm okay. If I'm joking about it, like we're good. That's how I can tell myself that whatever I am facing, I'm going to make it through it. If I can make a joke about it, if I can laugh about it. Like, we're going to get to the other side of this. And so I know my idea is controversial, but like, I am a comic. So that just makes it more appealing to me. (laughs) Right.
0: Right? When I ask people, like, how did you decide to start, you know, making Irish soda bread? And (laughs) the answer often is like, well, I'm a, you know, baker or I grew up with baking. Like, I think sometimes we, because we're so wired to heal and to, and to grieve, we pick up what is the most obvious tool, which is the things that make sense to us and that we already use and implement.
1: Yeah. And I don't think I'm alone in that either. I think a lot of comics find solace and comedy because they have seen how healing it is to laugh in the face of fear to laugh and the scariest moments of your life, you know, like, and it feels really good to make other people laugh. Like I forget about my stuff for a moment. If I can make it about you and surprise you and like, I don't know, there's just, there's something to that. But for me, like the comedy that I do up, you know, in these sorority houses is not mental health from top to bottom. I mean, I am telling my sex life, my dating life, all of those things and all in the guise of resonating with these young women, right? Like gaining the permission to walk into these rooms and be like, all right, we're gonna talk about all this hard stuff and it's not gonna be a downer. It's not mm-hmm. gonna bring the room down. And I'm going to show you how. I'm going to show you that it is okay to bring up the saddest part of your freaking life. And also in the very next sentence, laugh your ass off. I think the best way the vibes of the tour were described were slumber party vibes. Ah, ah that's the best. And I think as you know, women, we immediately get that right. And at my slumber parties, at least the one and I were having. We were telling dirty jokes and we were getting real deep and we're having these intense conversations. And so I think that's what we've been able to, I don't think, I know that's what we've been able to create here. And I just, it's interesting because you have this idea of what you want to do with all the extra energy you get when you experience loss. Yeah. And it's like. I think highlighted even in larger for me with suicide. Like there's so many other questions in the why and the should I have and could I have and these things. And it's like having this avenue where all of those questions go away because the energy is funneled into something that is making some kind of progress just feels like the best way i've been able to figure out how to grieve. you know
0: what it's making me think of is a client actually said to me this one said this to me one time that laughter is like this five senses experience. we know we know from neurology that the the sort of joy neuropathways and the intense sadness neuropathways line up they their highways touch and so sometimes you can be anxious and excited, right? Because like the neuropathways are touching and you can, you can kind of call it the wrong thing. You know, I'm, I'm anxious, but really I'm excited or I'm maybe mm-hmm. a blend of the two. What a client said to me one time is, you know, laughter is really only works in the moment. You can't be like, wow, what Stephanie said was really funny. I'm gonna laugh about that later you, it, it's a reactionary experience. And when I think about what we're always trying to do with grief is unburden some of the heaviness of the mm-hmm. energy. Right. And there's a million ways to do that. There's a million, but one really efficient way would be to laugh. Yeah. Right. I mean, one really efficient way, because it's, it's, it's a full contact sport. You know, you go into your body, it's, it happens across your chest. Your intellect is involved, but it's not really in control. And it, you, unlike people who like to control the like sadness part where they're like, well, I don't want to cry here at work. So I'm going to go home and cry later. Mm. It's very easy to explain to people like, no, you got to do it now. It's not going to be. (laughs) <laughs> you can't do it later. It is, and I'm thinking about all the people who have come in and told me with really mixed report about the hysterical laughter that happened inappropriately. Yeah, and 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 when they're talking about it, they are. There may be some energy and shame about I don't know laughing at a funeral, but mostly they're talking about it with gratitude.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been. It's been interesting to just be in the room with these young women and see their response to it. And Mm -hmm. I had such a timidness, right? Like, what if it doesn't hit? What if it doesn't resonate? What if I open with all of these jokes and think I am so funny and they tell me how old I am, you know, like,
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my God, college kids do tell me how old I am.
1: Yeah, I just was so worried, but you know, like I think they're just as hungry for that safe space to be able to talk about it Um, as, as I was, you know, I think one of the biggest things that came from the tour that I didn't expect was how good it felt to talk about JC all the time Uh, and how much people expected me to. Yeah. And I think for the first year, it just was so, raw and horrible and just felt like something i couldn't even touch yeah and then this past three months has been like oh i get to talk about her all the time and people want to hear about her so just as much as it was a lesson for them and like don't be afraid to bring the room down it was such a lesson for me too
0: well I love that because I think I think one of the things certainly on this podcast that we're always trying to do is offer some hope that it's not always going to feel this way, mm. right? Fresh grief is so, you know, it's full body and it's really hard to believe that it's ever going to feel any different. And in fact, there's a there's a great neuroscientist who I interviewed on this podcast, Mary Frances O'Connor, who basically like frames profound loss, particularly sudden loss, as this thing that your brain is trying to learn as if you had been kidnapped, brought to a foreign language, foreign country that speaks a foreign language. And you're expected to like do a job while you're there. You're, you're expected to like wait tables. Mm-hmm. And so your, your mind and your body are trying to integrate all of this information. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after a while, it will know how to walk to work. It will understand what that, that word means water. It just does take time. And it is, I, you know, again, some people have feeling about when they start laughing, they, you know, and and maybe you've had some of this, but you know, for some people that feels like a betrayal to their sadness. Mm. Have you had that have people.
1: I haven't experienced that specifically, but. I can see it in the timidness of like them not wanting to laugh. There always is that feeling of like, oh, should I be laughing at this? Right. Right. <laughs> right.
0: Which is what good comedy does all the time. Right. It, is that it takes you right up into the edge because you know, humanity really is irreverent, right. Mm. We're not linear. We're not clean. We're not tidy. We're super complicated. And also we're not unique. Like, whatever feeling you are having has been had by every other griever out there. Mm -hmm. And so part of what's really universal and useful when people are writing about it in memoirs, when they're talking about it out loud is I get to be like, oh shit, she and I, like she did that too. She thought Mm -hmm. that also. Yep. Right. And that, and I think when you're, when you're, I think comedy is perfect for introducing some of that like, Hey, let me tell you the truth. Like, yeah. let me tell you
1: that And like, I don't know, there's something about not only let me tell you the truth, but let me show you how to tell the truth.
0: Oh yeah. You know, that's really important. And I, I thought of this when I was reading your bio, I was like, you know, I have a really good friend who, if you ask her the worst thing that ever happened to her, she's going to tell you a story of going to a birthday party that ended up being a goddess circle. Yeah. and everyone was given like, I don't know, CBD oil or something. And then told to like go into their inner heart sanctum and to come out with like a sincere, like poem for the birthday girl. And oh. right. Uh-huh. And my friend was like, so obviously I don't speak to those people at all ever again. Right. And I'm kind of on the fence. Like I'm a little into that. I'm a little into the sincere and the woo woo and the rain stick and the goddess circle. But there are a whole bunch of people who also need to find ways to tell the truth and hear the truth and be in the truth that that kind of stuff is going to make them want to burn their eyebrows off. Yeah. It will is this whole other entry point, right? Like you don't have to go to a goddess circle to tell the truth about your grief and loss. That is not the only way. And I think sometimes, I don't know, the, the, the mental health component of it sort of, it reps a certain way, wears a certain uniform
1: that, and like grief doesn't make sense, right? It's not linear loss. Doesn't make sense. Like none of it is. is is something you can like check out in a science book. It's just something you have to go through. That's right. And so I'm the type of person who points out all of the ridiculous things in the world. And so now that I have been this person who is experiencing grief, I'm like, this is bullshit. (laughs) 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 Which makes it prime for comedy because like if I'm angry, oh God, I write so well.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: And and that part of grief for me has been great because, oh yeah, there is anger and grief.
0: Yeah.
1: And I also I love, think it's oh, been, I, I think it's been interesting too, to be able to show anger as a woman. Mm, say more. Uh, you know, like if I were creating a new dating profile, I probably wouldn't be like angry woman. Uh, <laughs> No, you She's don't think so? so angry. She's so angry because I want swipes. Right. And I think women being angry can typically be something that's used against us. And it's, it's not, it doesn't make us super approachable and turns out being approachable is not my number one goal. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just been interesting to be up there and and, ha- and be a little angry and that be okay. Because I think in my normal life, I'm angry in private unless I get pushed to a point and then I'm like angry for everyone. Uh, so I don't know, I think the anger parts, it's the toughest for me to be.
0: Yeah, I get I, that.
1: I wanna be done with the anger part as quickly as possible
0: yeah but you but you can't because then you're betraying yourself and your actual experiences and i think we could probably have a whole conversation about femininity and and the role that you know we sublimate anger and how we do that but i do know that it's a natural reaction to loss right like there's a resistance and you know i wrote a lot about on my early blogs i wrote about what i called emotionally emotional math which is like, if you said, oh, I'm going to my grandfather's 86th birthday, I'd be like, fuck you, not out loud. But in my head, I'm like, fuck you. How come you got your dad, your grandfather, six years longer than I got my dad? Like, what the hell? You're not better than I am. Like, and, you know, I knew enough because I had studied to sort of let myself have those feelings. Mm -hmm. What can happen for other people is they feel those things, which are totally natural and normal. You know, the emotional math is normal. Everyone Mm -hmm. does it. And then they're ashamed of themselves. Yeah. Like they're doing their grief wrong. Mm -hmm. And again, I can just imagine standing on a comedy stage and just naming and claiming these things as like, yeah, no, I basically, you know, and I've talked about this too. Like I'm not coming to your picnic way out an hour and a half away. Mm -hmm. Don't even ask me, why would I want to come? Yeah. And I, it's a little bit like, When I was pregnant, I was suddenly was saying to my husband, like, I'm not going to that concert at nine 30 at night where I have to stand. I'm too pregnant, but here's the thing. I was always not wanting to go to a concert at nine 30 at night where I had to stand. So I think there's some element of like accessing Mm -hmm. anger that probably always was being sublimated.
1: Correct. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Accurate information. I, I think for me grief is not linear for anyone and no one can do it right like I think the first thing that you should eliminate from your mind is thinking that you're going to grieve right yes. or it's gonna look cute right. or it's gonna be a memory that you're gonna want to talk about at Christmas like it's just not <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's not how it goes spoiler it alert
1: yeah spoiler alert that's not how it goes and so like I also think you have to have the leniency with yourself to go into whatever you were feeling from moment to moment, because I know from my grief process, like one minute I'm fine and one minute I'm not. And I have to be like, I have to alert everyone else around me that things changed. Yeah. And that is really hard for me because I don't like to be difficult. I don't, I'm a people pleaser. I like to yeah. you know, roll with it. Laid back. That's what anyone who tells you they're laid back is selling
0: something. I've never really met someone who's laid back because what laid back means is you are sublimating your emotions and you're not being true to yourself.
1: That's exactly how I feel about companies that are like, oh, we're like family here. I'm like, are you? Does that mean really? a lot and no one pays each other back? What the hell? <laughs> What, what family are we referring to? Hey, a good thing. Exactly. Why, why is that your selling point? Yeah. I've got one of those. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm a visual person and the best way that grief has been described to me is it's like this box and the box is like the outsides are like operation, you know? So if you hit a yeah. buzz yeah. and there's a ball in the box. And some days the ball's really big, and it just feels like it can't stop hitting the sides. Yeah. Some days the ball's smaller, so there's more time in between when it hits. Yeah. But every time it does hit, it feels the exact searing, horrible, like gut-wrenching moment-stopping pain.
0: A hundred.
1: So I, I think that visualization has been the most helpful for me. Yeah. So then it doesn't feel like I'm doing it wrong. It just feels like, turns out, this is just the process, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> like
0: That's an a, I have a phrase that I write a lot, which is it was always gonna be this way. Like, I know oh. you had some ideas and I know you had some hopes and dreams, but you know, one of the things that happened after my mom died is my younger sister and I had a fight. Like, if you ask my three children, what was the hardest thing about my mom dying? And in fact, I did on the podcast. I mean, you know, I was so sick with PTSD. I ended up in an inpatient facility. And what they will tell you was the hardest thing was the fight I had with my sister on the lawn (laughs) because they had never seen me that upset. I mean, I, we were, we were bringing up shit from like 26 years ago,
1: and then I uh, thought it was on a lawn, is what. Oh my really, God, a big The picture for me. Like a big old, uh, big old lawn. <gasps> big old lawn, like out in public near a beach where people could see us. Our voices yeah, were screaming. This is giving me so much life right now. Oh good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, what I can tell you is, I felt totally safe in the fight. I was offloading energy that I had been carrying, but it was like returning dishes to the, you know, the dish return, like in college, like, here you go, here are the dishes, you wash them. And there were, I I have five brothers and sisters. So there were a couple other people around who were not as okay with the decibel and the level, but also I know my sister well enough to know that it was okay. So we were having a kind of fight that was not really, the kind that would would have been okay when my parents were alive mm. but it was actually okay in this new iteration of life without my parents. Mm. And when you said your you know your anger writes good jokes, my anger tells the truth. Yes. So I'm not you know I just like it may not it may be a little shitty and it may be a little edgy but it is gonna be all the way real. And so I and I call it Megan double guns like anytime I come at you and with double guns and I'm gonna burn your house down, <laughs> what I know is there's some super, I know, Gotta like
1: get up on time to this podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that there, I know that there's a much more vulnerable part of me yes. and what, what I think for grief and loss experts, and you, I hope you have a bit on this, like the whole bullshit of the stages of grief. Like there are no stages. That's not a thing that happens. Yeah. It is not linear. We don't move through anything but also just being able to sort of acknowledge that like you have a feeling. And and the way I say it is like, who's driving your bus? Like which one of your feelings is driving your bus today? And anger is not a a typical bus driver for me, but anger drove my damn bus for a year. On the lawn, (laughs) (laughs) on the lawn, with the guns, burning the house down, yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. It was a lot, but, but I had to, co- I, it was true. That was how I felt. Yeah. I got angry about a lot of stuff. And then when anger sort of got us there, there was more vulnerability at the back of the bus that we could talk about. But I imagine humor is driving your bus and being that thing, like a sleepover party, we're like, actually, and also we're going to really, I'm going to give you little bites and pieces
1: mm. of deeply
0: vulnerable shit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think that's spot on. I think it's like the who is driving is really interesting, because it's like I think humor is actually never driving. Humor is more of like what comes out of it. Yeah. And I think the beautiful part is like when I am the most sad, or I am writing the funniest stuff when it's about the hardest stuff, I am like bawling crying while I'm writing the most funny things about the darkest topics, you know? And so it's like the release is what it is for me. Like the release of laughing and crying feel equivalent in my book. And I love both, like love to dip a toe in each, but I think there's something about laughing that it like takes, your whole body, like you said. Yeah. And like, there's also the element of surprise. Yeah. And I think it's like a gift. Yeah. With grieving and any feeling you can just kind of get stuck in it. Yeah. And laughing knocks me out of whatever that feeling is, even if it's a good one sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do this whole bit on, you know, it's sort of
0: teaching people about what the brain does, because neuroscience is sort of my vibe. And The, the left, the right side of your brain is the part that activates you. So it makes you anxious and it makes you overly alert and hyperactive. And the, the, that's the right side of your brain and the left side of your brain is the coolant. Mm. It's the part that takes you down and calms you down. And what's always interesting. And most, first of all, most people don't know that. Secondly, most people have one part of their brain that's more active than the other. And I don't mean like, or, do you do math or do you draw? Yeah. I mean, do you run more anxious or do you run more depressed? And if you think about it, like the yin and yang symbol, when you are depressed, when you can't get out of bed, when you're you know, bummed out all the time and you're crying a lot and you haven't taken a walk in days, something like laughter, like, you know, I, I am always like, hey, these are the comedy specials that people think are really funny. Mm-hmm. One show that I often... You know, for the folks who are really in in grief and want to be in grief, need to be in grief that's active. I'll often tell them to watch Afterlife with Ricky Gervais or Derek. I don't know if you've seen those shows, but you know, he's funny as hell, and it's they're you know he'll pull the chair out right from underneath you. But laughter is you know probably even better than going for a run for people that are on that de- depressive spectrum. And it's not always easy to come by, you know what I mean? Like it's not always easy to get there, but when you think about your whole body then is, this isn't like a soft little fall walk in the breeze that's, yeah. you know, and like, oh, well I moved around. Like if you can, if you can laugh so hard you can't breathe, you've moved all the energy inside yeah. the system. You've got a whole new thing going on inside. And that's yeah. magic in terms of grieving.
1: That and, you know, emotion follows action and laughing is like one of the least, it's like the laziest action you can do, (laughs) I support wholeheartedly, by the way. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I think it's, I have a question for you too. You mentioned it earlier. You said that the stages of grief are bullshit.
0: A hundred percent.
1: I read somewhere that we have actually misinterpreted the stages of grief all together, that those stages are actually for the person dying versus the person who has lost someone, much like we have misinterpreted blood is thicker than water, like all of those kinds of things. All the other important shit out there. You know, just the things I based my entire personality on. (laughs) That's right.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who stages those are really was a palliative care specialist. So she was helping people die. And Mm -hmm. so she was saying to the dying person, you are going to experience these things. Even she was not trying to imply that they were linear. That's the like work ethic from your bootstraps. We can, you know, kick the shit out of plan B like That's, that's the American way of like, we're going to go into our therapist's office for one hour and we're going to kick the shit out of grieving instead of you become a griever. You know, like when I had my daughter, I became a mother. No one ever asked me like, Oh, so are you back? Are you done with that? Have you recovered? Are you sleeping now? They don't do that. And they would never consider doing that. And so what I say to people is it's just like becoming a mother. It's just like becoming is who I am now. I will be this for the rest of my life. It doesn't mean it's going to be hard for the rest of my life. It's much less hard two and a half years later than it was in the beginning, of course. Yep. And I have bullshit days that take me out at the knees where I'm like, well, you know, what? <laughs> back in bed, back in bed. I don't always know when they're coming. I don't, you know, and I feel like it's really important to say this as a grief expert. I have read Everything. I am trained in everything. I did not understand that when I was doing that, I thought I was inoculating myself
1: from mm-hmm. yeah. the
0: process. I mean, it is so humbling to come to understand that I basically feared death, and and yeah, you know, I have death that marks my childhood and death, and when I'm in my 20s. So it's not like I was like, oh, I'm gonna escape it all I just was like, no more of that. Thank you. And so I thought I
1: had like rigged the system. And I, I feel like yeah. that. Is, do you feel like that in most areas of your life? Like people tell you like, oh yeah, this is how it works. And you're like, for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, I, oh God, I love that. I mean, I do. Cause I, that's why I write that phrase
0: down all the time. It was always going to be this way mm. because I think, you know, it's, it's how, it's how Buddha defines suffering is like your belief that it should be other than it is. Right. And I don't want to suffer. I just want to accept that this is the way that it was always going to be. And because, you know, there's a lot of guilt and a lot of rumination that can happen with grief. And I, again, I think those are parts of us like, oh, if I just blame myself for my mother's death. What I'm doing in that little loop is like, I am preventing myself from having to figure out how to live without her because I'm just over here, you know, really, really struggling. So yeah. I mean, I do think when people say, when I'm talking to people about grief and loss, I am not trying to say to them, Oh, you know, like somebody who's been to another foreign country and they're like trying to tell you to the coffee shop to go to. And you're like, that's not how it works. You go to a foreign country and you find the, your own coffee shops that you're excited about. I'm not trying to say to somebody, let me tell you how this is going to go down. Yeah. What I do say is we all have human bodies, human bodies across the planet are relatable. I can tell you about your body and how many bodies respond to trauma the same way that I can tell you how many bodies go through puberty. Yep. And I'll be right here while you figure this shit out. And I will believe that you can survive it because 99% of people do survive untenable loss. No one when they intellectualize it, thinks, oh, I could definitely survive the death of my child. I've been thinking about it. Here's how I know I would do it. <laughs> like, uh-uh, no one has ever no, said, that. not once. No. what they say is, I could never. And it's so brutal for grievers because they're like, what, what What? do you think? I could, I yeah. just am. And, w- and that's why I think of it as this part of you that you were growing. Yeah. Because you didn't have it until you needed it. Like, like someone threw you into a kitchen and it was like, you are the sous chef now and everybody needs to eat. And you're like, okay, I've never cut an onion before. Yeah. But, but okay. Poor restaurant. <laughs> Poor everyone. But after a while, you figure people it figure out. their shit out.
1: Yeah. You find your way. It's like, I think you put it so perfectly. It is relearning how to do life with the thing that you've never thought you had to live without. Yeah. And it's for me, it's so similar to getting sober. (gasps) Say more about that. I love this. Well, it's like getting sober, everything I did before, every celebration, every bad day, every dinner, every everything had alcohol tied to it. And so I stopped drinking and had to relearn how to celebrate myself and how to make that still feel good. And thinking back, like the other way is how everyone else is celebrating. So why the hell can I celebrate that way? And so same thing. It's like, after I lost JC, it's like, what does my birthday look like when my best friend doesn't call me anymore? How do I still feel celebrated on my birthday? Yeah. What does it feel like to go to work and see something funny and want to text her and know there won't be a response? What does this look like now? And it's like from every small thing to every big thing, it is relearning what this life looks like. And like, sure, there are bright spots of it, and getting to like redefine what your life is because of this. And so much is redefined as far as priorities and who you want to be around and what you want to be around. But it's like, it's shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, It's hard as fuck. And what I'm thinking about when you're saying this, and I I really appreciate the analogy to getting sober because I, I do think what you're describing is like, I'm tethered to this thing, right? Mm-hmm. So like I'm tethered to alcohol or drugs or whatever. And I'm tethered to this person. And that was certainly my experience is that like my mother was like the center pole of the tent. Yep. And I don't even really think I understood how much she was the center pole to the 10. It was so confusing after she died. I looked around at my house and was like, do I even like these things? You know, I was so lost. And, and like, did I buy those sheets because she likes them or did I, I don't even fucking know. And part of that is the, part of that is the overwhelm, the central nervous system, just really being cooked And part of it also is there is this kind of like natural identity crisis when you, when you are no longer in connection, right? Like, I mean, if right now I turned my camera off and asked you to talk, just the fact that we don't have eyes to meet and my nodding and all of that, like you feel totally different inside your body, giving a a talk without, you know, that's that times a million when you lose your people, it's that times a million. And what you just described, you know, I, I did this thing, I'm kind of like a masochist with grief sometimes because I'm like, I just really want to feel the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I did this thing one time where I like kept a tally of how many times I felt the loss of my mom in a day. Mm. And the number was like 1,629. I mean, there just wasn't a breath. Mm. And I showed it to my husband and was like, do you see these, these tallies? This is what grief feels like. Yeah. It's this much. It's this because in, in the world we act like, well, yeah, you know, people die and like, Mm. it's hard and whatever, but you know, you can make it through. And I think even in the grief world, even in the people who are doing the academic studies, there's either like pathological grief and like you need to talk to somebody or like you know, people kind of get through it. Okay. And in my experience, because people don't, A, they don't know they're grieving. They don't understand that like the headaches are about grief or the anger is about grief or the dropping out of college is about grief or the leaving their job is about grief. They, they can't make that one-to-one correlation. They just know they can't stay in college anymore. Yep. So because we don't really have a way of like really talking about it, asking somebody, did you have all the support that you needed? Mm. Is is like asking somebody in a Chinese food restaurant, like, did you get your iced coffee? Like, were you okay not having iced coffee? Like, I know they don't have iced coffee here. So it didn't even occur to me to ask for iced coffee.
1: Right. God. I'm trying to think how I want to respond to that because so much came up for me when Mm. you were saying that of just like, like, yeah, I think one thing that came up for me was like, I think the, yep, everyone just kind of figures it out Yeah, and immediately everything in me want to be like, no, 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 (laughs) they do not like some people choose not to process it. And yeah. it comes out in every avenue of their life, whether they like it or not. Yeah, And I think like, it's a big part of it. You do have to choose to go through it. Yeah, It's not just going to happen to you. You're, you're gonna feel the effects either way. You're welcome to go through it, dance through it, walk through it, whatever you like. But like, at some point you do have to make that choice. I think for me, it took me like a solid year to really decide that I needed to feel it all.
0: Yeah.
1: My first year I just needed to get sober so I could mentally yeah. be in a good place to process it. And then when I started, it just was like oh my goodness. And I I kept just thinking like, "Oh, I want to be this isolated because it's post-COVID and I'm used to it." Yeah. It's not cuz I'm grieving and like I had just moved to LA. So I was trying to make all new friends, <laughs> like grieving and making new friends should not legally no. be allowed. <laughs> or, dating, okay. or
0: dating. Or like, dating. Or yeah.
1: dating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Why did I move to LA? What was I doing last year? You know, wh- how are your people? Why, mm-hmm. why did you go there? Like, do it's only our second date. Should I lead with? Uh-huh my friend died by suicide and like are we going all the way to bummer yeah bummerdom on day on day two do we are
1: we I guess I'm not getting laid
0: (laughs) or or maybe it'll be that sad sack lay right (gasps) it's a pity everyone yeah everyone loves the pity fuck
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah It's, I mean, it's wildly complicated. And I, you know, what you just described, like those of us in the field have uh, that talk about sort of like, you know, when do you go to therapy? Do you need therapy? How do you process grief? Like, I really do think that there is some wisdom in the, in the like, Hey, I had to get sober first. Mm. or you know there's a woman who I interviewed a while back Derek Kurtz and her mom died like a couple of weeks before her baby, her baby was born wow. and then she had a bunch more babies so it was like 14 years before she was really ever able to address it wow. i don't think it's like well you know again we got to kick the ass of plan b like i don't think we have to like lose the baby weight of grief like i think it it's going to be with you it's going to show up and what we're hoping you know, traumatization really means like the bad thing, the trauma left really bad footprints in your life and only bad footprints. Mm. And that's the thing we're looking for is like, we don't want people to become alcoholics because of grief, but they sure as shit do. And we don't want people to never leave their house or never leave their job or never leave their marriage if they need to because of grief, you know, like that, that's, That's, that's the risk that we run, but just because someone spends a year not thinking about it doesn't mean that's what's happening. And I think, you know, part of the beauty of what you've been talking about and using the humor to talk about is reminding people that, you know, you don't get to decide what is the right thing, Mm. spectator, mother-in-law, aunt, physics professor, like-
1: I'm just gonna say you said mother-in-law very quickly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can edit that out if you want. Okay, uh. a quick side note. I love my in-laws, they're delightful people. <laughs> and actually, that may have been a Freudian slip. Part of the reason I started writing, which was my primary outlet after mm-hmm. in grief, right? And so you know, you and I talked about this for a minute, that the verb it, the verb of grieving, like how do we do it? I started writing, and part of the reason I started writing is that my husband is English, his parents are the English of English, and my mom died in the summer. We went to their house in at Christmas time, and in a way that is probably totally culturally appropriate, no one asked me anything about her ever. Yay. The entire time I was there, and I felt so fucking crazy. Really? Like, Yeah. No, I wanted someone to say to me, how are you doing? It's Christmas. Got it. Your mom died. Are you missing her? Are you thinking, I wanted someone to be like, Hey, you grew three inches,
1: you know, like, like. Noticing like what you're going through. Got it. I thought you were like grateful for the space of not having it. So apologies. My reaction was oh no, I thought you're, I thought you were being sarcastic. No. And I think again, like
0: that's totally possible. I'm not looking at their way and being like those inhumane. I more am looking at it like, what did I need? The absence of what I needed, which was someone to say something to me about, hey, your mom died six months ago. This is a major holiday without her. I'm sure they thought they were giving me space, but because I'm a little bit of a sarcastic asshole, <laughs> I started being like, oh, my mom likes caramels. Oh, my mom just to, you know, apropos of nothing, like, oh, do you want to watch Indiana Jones? Oh, my mom liked Indiana Jones, which wasn't true, but I needed oxygen. I needed the space to like have have that pain be recognized and opened. And so while my mother-in-law has never criticized me, I did notice being with them, being with my in-laws, I did actually gain sort of like this access to like, oh, I need, I need a lot more recognition of what I am carrying right now invisibly.
1: Oh, that's really beautiful that you were able to see that, right? Versus. yeah, I mean, it came out angry though. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's got, I mean, but yeah, all, all insights start as something like as an emotion, we're not real stoked about. And then it gets to the insight, but I just love like how free you are with all the timing of, of your grief, right? And I think that's an important reminder. And I love that you write through your grief. That has been one of the biggest things for me. And I think being a writer, I was very intimidated to do that because I feel like everything has to be written perfectly and the comma and like, so, so, and I have a few tips for people who are maybe nervous about getting started writing about it.
0: Oh my God, what are they? Tell me.
1: My favorite thing to do is write first thing in the morning when I wake up.
0: Yeah, so good.
1: And just stream of consciousness, no correcting anything, whatever comes out. If a complete different start thoughts, you know, thought starter comes up, take it and go, you know, and just getting it out. I I love that was so helpful for me. And to not have this critic on the top of my shoulder being like, oh, really? You feel that way? (laughs) Fuck off. That feels like church to me though. That feels like
0: prayer, you know, when you, Mm -hmm. and I have a million journals. And again, I wasn't really a journal. I'm, I'm changed by the experience. Not all of it is for the worse. When I started writing, you know, I wasn't, you know, now I have a, I'm, I have a memoir that's coming out and I'm selling another book right now. And I've been really lucky to have people around me who believe in the voice, not necessarily so much in the commas and my M dash experience. So I, (laughs) the like inner critic of like, what are you doing? You don't even know how to use quotations. I was, I was invited into a writing fellowship with an editor really early on. And she was like, Hey, so yeah, you know, you're using a lot of like sentence fragments and I, it's fine. It just like, I think maybe a full, and I was like, Hey, so you are overestimating my current command of the English language what is a sentence fragment? I mean, I took all those classes in school. I read I'm smart and well-educated, but I had not sat down to construct a sentence intentionally in a long time. And God loved that woman because she was like, okay, so we're going to do a quick review. And I was like, I I think it's going to be more like eighth grade English. It's going to be like every week that I talk to you, we're going to cover another (laughs) drunken white element of writing but but when you are when you can give yourself permission to see it as an expression and i run a i run a free grief writing workshop on my platform grief is my side hustle and what i say to folks is you know some of you are writers which means you can write for process and know that there will be a product others of us are just writing for process mm. so you know you don't this is not for anyone to see except yeah except acknowledging you, acknowledging your own sort of soul
1: and and your own feelings. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Writing has just been such a big part of it. And I think you hit it square on as like the writing I do not for product and just for me is the one that helps me process the most. I don't know. And just sometimes like I'm more willing to share where I'm at if I have to put it into words. Yeah. And I have to sit there and find the words. Uh, than if I just keep moving about my day, it's also just the forced sitting down for a minute.
0: Yeah. And
1: it's the pause. I mean. Yeah, that's right. That I really need throughout this grief process. And I didn't realize how helpful, just pausing sometimes for five minutes, 10 minutes, and just being still sometimes like sitting in a closet with the door closed, just in like a small space, but being quiet and still has been a game changer for me.
0: I work on that. I find stillness and quiet and meditation, even though I hypocritically tell people all the time actually it's not hypocritical because I'm like hey I'm not good at this but I've heard it's good for you <laughs> I find that stillness really like still itchy right like it's like just hard to to be with the you know the white hot pain that I'm gonna uh, and I always think of it as like diving and touching the drain of a pool like uh, I can't stop in the middle I always go all the way yeah. down when I'm when I'm sort of slowing myself down. And I, and I also like, I think the concept around, you know, what are we writing for and how are we writing is, I mean, it's enough to make me burn my journals for sure. And my husband <laughs> has had that instruction, like, do not let anyone see what's inside here. It is insane. In here here is it,
1: full access to my Google search. Right.
0: Yes. journals, Okay. As <laughs> As <least>. Preserve, <laughs> preserve my vanity. But I think I think there is the, the narrative therapy element of it, which is like, when you write your words down, you come to understand yourself better Mm -hmm. and you can, your brain can trust that the words are written down. So you don't have to like turn them over. You don't have to turn that experience over because you've recorded it. Mm -hmm. And, and so that is true for me. And when I'm then moving it towards product, like I wrote this for me, but I want it now to make sense, more sense to you. Mm -hmm. One thing that has been helpful and, and an interesting like progression, because I always did talk therapy as a way to understand myself. Like it's very similar to being edited where like you put all the words out there and then the therapist is like, okay, so I think what you said was you feel sad about your dog, And they're like, well, I said a lot of things, but yeah, you're right. That's the most salient, and that's what editors do. They're like, there's nine thousand words here, and I think these three sentences are all we need. Yeah, you're you're like, great. (laughs) But also, you look at it and you're like, you're right. That is the nugget. That is the distillation. And for me, getting to that distillation, I write, I write to get to a product, and then I talk about it to either my best friend or my husband. And so it's this three step of Honoring my experience, right? Like the messy part, the more polished part, and then the like, I don't know, reality testing part of like, does this make sense to you? Do, you know, do you do you get the essence of how I'm feeling? Because what I've discovered, and I imagine as a comedian, the laughter is part of this. It's really validating for people to be like, yeah, this makes sense, and it touched me.
1: Yeah, it it has to resonate, right? if you, if you haven't felt that feeling, if you don't, if you can't tap into an honest human emotion, sure. Cheap laughs. You can use certain curse words in a row and those sound funny, but like (laughs) to really get that gut laughter, like you're tapping into human emotion. Yeah. And I think grief taps into every emotion and more that you've never experienced do you write jokes and not realize that they're going to hit
0: like that people are going to laugh at them differently because i definitely have put put stuff out in the world where i'm like that's like a b and then people come back at it like oh my god this was so meaningful to me and i'm like jesus i didn't even know i just was like saying you know sort of basic stuff does that happen with jokes
1: too all the time. I mean, you have sure. to keep too. like, by the time you've seen a comedy special, they have run that material oh, thousands. thousands of times. Right. So the first time you kind of have like this idea and you go and run it out. And sometimes you're like, Hmm, they laughed at that part. That wasn't the joke, but I'm <laughs> going to say it again. Cause they laughed at it. And that's like, yeah. mean. so yeah, a hundred percent of the time. And then, you know, like, I think when you're talking about these things, like sometimes you have said them so many times you don't realize the power behind them when someone yeah, else is right. hearing it for the first time. Yeah. And so it, it's a lot of those moments of like, it, it's kind of hard sometimes to go back to that moment of writing it and remember how powerful it was. Cause you're like, yeah. oh, well, that did come from that place but like, that's exactly what you want is just that person to just, you can see it in their expression. You can see yeah. it in the face. Like there's even some, I tell a joke about my first blow job. Uh-huh. And you can tell the women in the room who have experienced something similar because they're <laughs> reacting much different like, than anyone else. No, they themselves away. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. And I call them out too. I'm like, Uh, like, that's the beauty of like, not feeling alone in it. Right. Uh Is every time I tell that joke and someone laughs because they've heard it for the first time, it's like, okay, they're laughing because I am not alone in that. I am not the only person who's experienced that this is so universal. And like, there's joy and pain that comes from that because yeah. you don't want anyone else to feel this yeah. ever once you go <laughs> but, through it but it does I do think it's like at the core of
0: humanity right like like Cecil Day-Lewis has that awesome quote which is like we read to feel understood mm. and it's true I mean when I was Grieving, people gave me a lot of grief books. I ordered a lot of grief books. I threw seventy percent of across the room because they would betray me at some point. Yep, they would show something, and I'm like, "That's not my story." And I chuck it. Now I apologize to all the authors because now that I'm writing a book, I'm like, "Jesus, it's so hard." <laughs> but also, that's what that stuff is there for is for you yeah. to feel. Same with poetry. Same with music. Same with comedy same with art is that it's there to evoke that whatever like soul stirring experience that you know that connects us all and so i i often have this experience where i get this little like vulnerability hangover like i say something And then I'm like, Jesus, what? Like, that was too much, Megan. You are too much. And then I have to go take a bath and hide in the bath and then (laughs) like check my, you know, check my little blog or whatever. And somebody will write to me. One person usually, it's not like dozens. You know, one person will be like, this really touched me today. And I'm like, okay, that is the universe reminding me that what I'm doing matters more than just me. And so I'll, and so I live another day. Like I'll do it again. That you are not too much. Yeah. Yeah. I am too much. Feel free to go look for less. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely (laughs) am too much for some people. And as (laughs) Lennon Doyle says, like, that's perfect. Bless and release. Keep going. It's wonderful that we know that. And you should feel free to go. Like, I'm so happy that you know that you do not want to be around me. Goodbye.
1: I Um, love that. I I was really lucky to, I got to interview Robin Williams son. Oh my gosh. For my podcast. He has been such a huge supporter of the tour. I mean, it clearly aligns in all of the ways we're oh, yeah. Yeah. connected. It just was, you know, one of those moments and he, he just shared so much with me and it was so similar to that. And like, he really looked at advocacy and all the work that he's doing, like as the healing. Yeah. His grief work. Yeah. And, and just, was able to talk about it so well and, you know, being new to the mental health space, I've been, you know, a dirty comic for a while now, but (laughs) (laughs) now that I'm on the good side, it feels weird. (laughs) And his biggest advice to me was like, make sure you're investing in all the other parts of your life. Oh, that's gorgeous. He's like, this can so quickly take over and because it is so meaningful and there is so much good here, but you will only be able to do the amount of good in this space as you dedicate to the rest of your life.
0: That's God, that's so wise. And what I would also say about that is, you know for some people, they are building something that is the legacy that grows out of grief, right? So it's that making meaning of your grief and you have the, you know, the Susan G. Cohn, you know, foundation because her sister died that you're, you know, donating a library to whatever. Many, many people are just doing this for a little while. Mm -hmm. And I have a good friend who's also a grief podcaster. And, you know, recently she said like, I, my heart is not in this in the same way. And it's like, then, you know what, baby, then it, it, it you're done with each other. That's so great. Like what you created was good enough. You gave it to the world, you needed it. And if you're not grieving in that way, then go live your grief different. There yeah. isn't the right way. And so I love what, what Robin Williams son said, because I think what he's saying is like, nobody wants just grief work to be the whole experience of your life, because that's about yearning and behind you. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we're trying to do. That's probably more like a definition of trauma. Mm. What we want to be able to do is continue to evolve and grow and grow into our grief and carry our grief and keep living and keep adding and keep changing and adapting with the wisdom of the experiences that we have. Right. So I love the idea of making sure that, you know you don't just have chickens on your farm. You've got all the farm animals. Cause you, you know, that's what you want. You want a full life out there. Yeah. I want to ask you about the tour. Will you tell us about like, what's it called? Who's on it? I read the press release for it and I was like, how do I get to this thing as fast as possible? When's it happening? How can people follow you? All the stuff. Tell us all the things.
1: Perfect. So it's called the without rhyme Nor reason comedy tour. Unless you're in a sorority, it's really hard to see us. (laughs) Damn it. I know. Forty-eight. Do you think anyone will (laughs) take me? I've seen a couple of like movies where some older people have gone into fraternities. So maybe. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, we just finished our first leg of the tour, which was in the South. So we performed at sorority houses all over Florida, Georgia, Alabama, and Texas. And wow. in the fall, we're going to be going to the Northeast. So we are opening up booking for that on June 1st, which is so exciting and Will
0: you send me all that stuff? I'll put it in the show notes and then we'll make sure that if people are currently at colleges and they are listening to this and they're like, oh my God, we need this, that they'll know how to get in touch with you. But maybe also we can make a commitment that once it's set, we can put it, you know, make a little commercial on my page so that people will know that they can sneak into this sorority on this yeah. Friday night and see you if they don't already belong.
1: That would be, yeah, wonderful. If anyone has any contacts to schools in the Northeast, I am from the Texas area originally, so it'll be a new crew for me. So would love any contacts there. Uh, But yeah, that would be absolutely wonderful. People can follow along the tour. It's at without rhyme nor reason on Instagram. It's wrnrcomedytour.com. If you want to buy merch or anything else like that, it's, it's a full-blown tour. The whole thing. (laughs) And there, how many other comedians are on the? So the host of the tour is Ryan Rogers. He is with me at every single stop. And then every week we fly out a new feature comic. So we're flying them out from HBO or from (laughs) HBO, from New York and LA and their comics who have been on HBO, incredible women who are opening up the show. So it's, It's a fun time. And then afterwards, we record a live podcast with the entire sorority. So we get to ask them questions and open up the floor to them. So that's recorded. And all of those podcasts will come out right after the interview with Zach Williams. And that will launch in June.
0: That's a blast. Whose idea was this? How did this, how did it come together? Was this you? Damn. Damn, (laughs) you innovating over there. (laughs) That is And because you can't see Stephanie, because I don't put the video up, although, you know, you look beautiful and I could, if you're out there in the world and if you're wondering if it's her, she has a gorgeous tattoo down her arm, which is the name of the tour without rhyme or no reason. And, and that's also something that the name of the tour is significant, right? You told me Yeah. That- yeah. It's
1: based off something JC used to say for everything. It was why we were making plans while we were bailing on plans, why something broke. <laughs> so yeah. Your permission slip for living in in the world. Yeah. Permission slip for everything. I like that. I've never thought of it that way, but yes, it is my permission slip. I love it. I have, I, the only
0: reason I do not have my mother's name my mom had amazing like old lady handwriting, like the kind that nobody teaches anymore with handwriting. Yeah. And, stuff. Um, and I have a, a check she sent me for my birthday with her, hand, you know, her signature on oh. it. And I'm all ready to have it tattooed on my left wrist. I just have not trusted the world of COVID to go out to my tattoo guys in Frederick and get it done. But that's my plan. So when we meet in real life, we can compare tattoos. And I love it. Toys. The first tattoo um, I
1: ever, like the first two tattoos I got were both in loved ones handwriting. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: we'll we'll do another podcast about tattoos one day because I do talk a lot to people about sort of what are their mementos and how, and, you know, it's one of the prompts in my workshop. And I've always been really moved and deeply stunned just by how meaningful those particularly, I mean, yeah, there are people who have Calvin and Hobbes pissing on a truck, as they're <laughs> and like. Listen, I'm not here to judge, but sorry, most you know my father. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm really sorry, I'm not in a sorority, but I haven't given up hope that there would be a chance that we that I'm going to get to see you and see your act. This has been a like true delight. I have laughed many times, very hard. I, you know, I'm, I am also, I I really do just want to say, you know, we talk about compound loss a lot on this podcast, the idea that like my dad died and I didn't really fully process that. And then my mom died. And so they're all kind of mixed together. I really appreciate you just dropping in the sobriety part in here because that is a compound loss, you know? When you are getting sober, you are also losing a tool and relearning the world in this really profound way. And I just, you know, I don't know that we talk about it that way a lot. And I know there are people listening who are like, there's no way I could have gotten through my grief without alcohol. And, you know, we're not here to say that there is or isn't the right way around alcohol, but sobriety is living an incredibly intentional life one day at a time. And actually that's really what grief is for a lot of people as well. Yeah. So it's just, a you know, you did a lot of that all at once and, you know, came out laughing, which is just, I I'm always trying to offer some hope because I think particularly today, what I've been saying to people is I just don't have any hope. I am hopeless. And that is how I'm going to feel. Yeah. But in testimony to how grief work works, I don't feel hopeless now. I've had some really good belly laughs at the ridiculousness of how life works. And you've really given us a gift and another way to think about what grieving can look like. And I'm just, I'm really, I'm stunned by your work. I'm really grateful for the gift of this conversation.
1: I am too. Thank you so much for having me. Truly. It's like, I love talking about this shit, so thank you. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I could do it all day. And listen, I want you to know that I'm going to send to your publicist an invitation to a goddess circle where you'll-
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great, can't wait. I'll definitely give that a peek. Uh... Stephanie, thank you
0: so much for your time today. Thank you for being in this world of grief and loss and mental health. Thank you for being so funny. And I really hope we stay in touch.